You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. So we are going to hop into Luke, and if you're new with us or you haven't heard it before because you missed that week, uh, God gave us a word way back in March, very surreal, uh, which the Holy Spirit was just very straight. There are cherry blossoms for 1208. We looked that up. Cherry blossoms across all cultures are a sign of renewal. We certainly need that. Renewal is even a very spiritually charged term in the church. There's a charismatic renewal, things like that, in which the Holy Spirit pours out in new ways. There are cherry blossoms for 1208, but you need to repent to make space for gifts. We spent two weeks over the summer really repenting. We did private repentance, and then we did corporate repentance. And then I felt like I needed to, well, I, I didn't want to do it anymore, so I stopped Uh, Someone else in the church had dreams that you're not done repenting yet. And I knew that we were supposed to keep doing it. So last week we did some more of it. And this week uh, we're going to talk kind of about temptation so that we can keep our repentance going strong. Because last week we learned, as I said earlier, repentance in the Old Testament is returning to God. It's literally like walking the wrong way, turning around, returning back to God. Repentance in the New Testament has overtones of radically changing one's mind. Radically changing one's mind, which fits well. You're walking this way. I've decided to make my mind up. I'm going over here. And Jesus and John the Baptist and all the other evangelists of the New Testament saying, radically change your mind and go the other way. So Jesus comes and takes on a baptism of repentance from John, which is kind of weird because does Jesus need to repent of anything? He's perfect. But he does it anyways, which is pretty humble of God to take on a baptism of repentance. And when he comes up out of the water, God baptizes God with God, right? In other words, the Holy Spirit is sent from God the Father down to Jesus the Son. And a lot of people think like, oh, that's just a little strange. I mean, Jesus is God. That probably didn't really do anything. It's just symbolic or something. But that's not the case. Jesus, the Bible tells us Jesus let go of certain parts of himself as God so that he could be fully human. You see throughout the scriptures that Jesus is not omniscient like the Father because omniscience does not belong with humanity. Jesus is not in his flesh until he's resurrected. He's not immortal like the Father because that would not work with humanity. Jesus actually had to like let go of some pieces of his godhood in order to actually become fully human because the problem that he had to fix was a human problem. And the prophecy to Adam and Eve way long ago is one day you will have a descendant that will crush the snake and put things right again. The human problem has to be solved by a human, but no human got it right, so Jesus put on human skin and did it himself. So Jesus, when he is filled with the Holy Spirit after his repentance of baptism, his baptism of repentance, he is then baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what happens next? He's driven out into the desert. Driven out into the desert. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit today? Amen. You want to be driven out in the desert today? (laughs) A hearty amen on the first. A less of an amen on the second. 
And we gotta ask those questions sometimes. I mean, like, why? You know, why why the desert? Well, Jesus was the most spirit-filled person that there ever was. He didn't operate in one piece of the gifting of the Holy Spirit. He operated in all the pieces. The people recognized that the Holy Spirit was on him because they knew all the stories of prophets in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets sometimes raised the dead. The Old Testament prophets sometimes healed people. The Old Testament prophets sometimes um, replenished food miraculously. The Old Testament prophets could do all kinds of things. So when they see Jesus doing it, but it's not just a little bit, it's a lot of it. And they see him doing it on scales that have never been done before. He's not just feeding one widow with miraculous food. He's feeding an entire desert full of people, entire wilderness full of people. Well, this guy's got the Holy Spirit on on another level that they've never seen before. And if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit to that kind of extent, there's going to have to be some testing. There has to be some testing because when you do not conform your mind to that of the Holy Spirit, you do not think like God and you might even use gifts wrong. Some theologians call this semi-autonomous power. Elijah is a great example in the Old Testament. Elijah seems to have the ability to call down fire from heaven. I know there's that one point where they build this whole thing and then he calls down fire from heaven and it all burns up. But it's almost as though that stays with him after because there's a part where king sends an army to him and Elijah just burns him up because he doesn't want to go talk to the king. So the king sends another army and Elijah burns him up. King sends another army. He's about to burn him up. And then an angel shows up. He's like, would you stop it? (laughs) Just go with them. Go talk to the king. I'm paraphrasing that angel. That's not how he said it. But it was more or less just go with them. As though like, Elijah, you didn't have to kill a bunch of people today. You just need to talk with the king. He goes and talks to the king and that's the end of the chapter. Like really eventful, right? But he was afraid. He was afraid of the army. So he kept burning them up. That same kind of semi-autonomous power almost seems to be carried by the disciples in the New Testament. The sons of thunder, right? Jesus, they won't let us stay anywhere in this town. Should we call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? No, let's just keep going. Oh, that's not how we use power, right? You got to be able to trust people with power. I don't know at what dimension it is given to you to be used rightly and what dimension God has control, but the Bible does seem to show some glimpses where there's a little bit a little bit of control maybe on your side as to how the Holy Spirit gifts you and then uses you. And some people use that power without even following God. There's a point where Jesus comes up to these, uh, he tells kind of a story about coming up to who appear to be spirit-filled Christians who say, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. We healed people in your name. We saw signs and wonders in your name. And Jesus says, I don't know who you are. How does Jesus not know who these Christians are, these spirit-filled Christians? The answer is, you are workers of lawlessness. Those are people filled with the Holy Spirit, but not with repentance. Baptism of the Spirit, but not the baptism of water. I mean, surely they were baptized in water, but they weren't living it out. If you want to be gifted with the greater gifts, repentance is crucial. You need to be trusted with what you are walking into. 
And sometimes we don't do that. Elijah, great guy, but maybe not always trusted with that power. Elijah gave a double portion to his predecessor, Elisha. Remember the first thing Elisha did with his power? Some kids called him bald, so he called some bears out to kill him. Yo, Elisha, I don't think that's probably how that works, man. Hey, you're bald. Hey, I'm sending she-bears after you, is what the Bible says. Mm, A little extreme, don't you think? Maybe just don't comment back, you know. Jesus is filled with the Spirit, and now he has a testing face. Jesus, you have the greatest power in the world. Go and fast in the wilderness for 40 days. He's literally thrown into the same exact circumstances as Israel, right? Israel is actually called like God's son. And they're sent into the wilderness, in their case for 40 years, to see if they'll pass the test. Will you stop griping and complaining and thinking that being back in slavery is somehow better than being in freedom? And will you instead focus on serving the one true God, Yahweh? The answer that they give over and over again is no. No, 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 no. Why did you bring us out in the wilderness to die? Oh, our leader went up on the mountain. He's been there for a while. Let's just build some other gods. Or at least build a thing that this Yahweh guy can inhabit because we don't know much about him. Maybe he can go in the statue. We don't know fully the way that they're thinking, but they just constantly don't focus on God. And they find themselves faithless toward him too. God's like, look, I'm, I'm like God, God. I can do anything. We got to face some giants in the Holy Land. We'll do it. Yeah, giants are big. You can't do that. We're not going Oh, guys, why don't you ever listen? We can do this. No, we can't. And so you constantly see Israel battling with God. In fact, the name Israel means striving with God. Don't you love it when the name God gives you is you keep battling me all the time? That's Israel's name. And that's literally their story. Just duking it out with God left and right. Jacob, his entire story when he gets the name Israel is him wrestling with God. (laughs) Physically wrestling with God. We wrestle with God all the time rather than being faithful, rather than listening. We tend to go our own way all the time. That's the human story. But Jesus is the human descendant of Adam and Eve who is also God who is finally going to get this right. And so he goes in the desert and he finds himself tempted and tested. The Bible tells us that God or that Jesus was tested in all the ways that we're tested. But Jesus comes out the other side successful. And that's impressive because it's one thing to be in the wilderness trying to face temptation. But it's another thing to be in the wilderness and starving and to keep facing temptation. But that's what Jesus does. And it's another thing still to have Satan somehow magically appear in front of you and still be obedient to God despite a manifest temptation right in front of you. So in Luke 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Which is like the biggest understatement in the whole Bible. He didn't eat for 40 days and then he was hungry. But note this. This is the end of the 40 days. 
He hasn't eaten for 40 days. When does the temptation come? Like all the way on the home stretch, the last day. He's hungry. He should be. It's been 40 days and it's almost over. And then the devil shows up and says, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Wouldn't be that crazy. I mean, stones in the Old Testament broke water out for people and they drink that. Jesus is the son of God like Israel was the son of God. Jesus is in the wilderness like Israel was in the wilderness. Stones feeding people in the wilderness. Satan gives a temptation. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. He could do it if he wanted. But instead, Jesus recognizes he's talking to Satan. You want to overcome temptation? First step, recognize who you're talking to. Because if it's not Jesus, then it could be a temptation. And if you know straight up that this is anti-Jesus, then you need to shut the conversation down. Because anything coming out of the mouth right there at that point, any thought entering into your brain, if you know it's anti-Christ, then it's time to say, no, 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 this, this is a temptation. I'm not going to listen. It wouldn't have seemed that morally wrong to eat at the end of 40 days. But Jesus recognizes the temptation is not that the source of the temptation is Satan. And you don't listen to Satan. So he answers Satan, Satan, who has just quoted scripture to him. Jesus answers back with scripture, says it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy. And in Jesus' time, a lot of people, like, they didn't have a lot of books. So a lot of scripture just kind of ends up up here, stays memorized and, and stays up there. So when people hear Jesus say, man does not live by bread alone, they're hearing the rest of the statement too. Oh, we know what Jesus is quoting. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus is choosing God over nourishment right here. And they would know more of that Deuteronomy passage where God is God and he is the one that we choose. And we choose no other gods, including this satanic being right in front of him. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus has scripture quoted to him by Satan. And Jesus quotes scripture back. Again, Jesus has scripture quoted to him, which is the way the devil works. And Jesus quotes scripture back. When I'm doing demonic deliverances, I have seen people trapped in lies based around scripture. Where Satan takes a scripture and twists it. Someone once had a dream uh, about me that made them feel horrible. And we had been casting out this demon for a while. So I knew that this dream was demonically inspired in this particular case because they had done this many times. But the dream was that I had written a book about them and how bad uh, things had gone in their life. And I used scripture when I was doing it. And the scripture that I quoted was that this person was like the leper, unclean. But I, Jamin Bradley, righteous as I am, came and touched the unclean person and made them whole again. The demons told a tale about a pastor, used scripture, and they used it to diminish this person. They actually woke up from a dream. It was one of those ones that felt surreal enough to feel like that was a memory, right? That happened. It's like, no, no, no. I have not written a book about you. <laughs> And I certainly would never refer to you in that way, nor do I feel that way 
if I touch you. They've taken scripture and twisted it. Do not buy into that lie. That is not the way I feel. Demons take scripture all the time. They know it too, and they know how to twist it on us. So when a scripture comes to mind, sometimes you need to say, how does this balance out with the rest of scripture? In fact, that was my own, I think, temptation and struggle with demonic lies in my own life, is that anytime I came across any passage that talked about, you know, if you're not righteous, you're going to be condemned. The enemy would always take those passages and feed them back into me through their own lies. Jamin. When did you sin last? Oh, this morning. <laughs> yeah, you're probably going to be condemned. Oh, probably. You know, and like just letting that fester in me until I know it got bad enough at one point where uh, I got to the point of just like, Jesus, I'm going to be faithful to you. I will serve you all the way to the end. And I understand you might condemn me, but I'm still going to serve you. Now that's a weird Christian identity crisis to have. God actually had to break a demon off of me that freed me from that identity crisis to realize that I had really caught on to a religious look at who Jesus was. And now I could see him as the identity of a child of God and how much he loved me, cared about me, and was not interested in condemning me, but raising me up into the fullness of the resurrection that he's calling us into. So just because scripture is quoted does not always mean that you are hearing truth. You need, to, you need to go to the real word of God, which is who? It's Jesus. Jesus is called the word of God. You need to go to the real truth, which by the way, truth is not doctrine. Truth is not a political standpoint. Truth is not what you learn in books. Truth in the Bible is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. <coughs> And so just because you feel like you have all these things worked out in your own life as to what truth is, if it doesn't match Jesus, it's actually not truth. Always come to Jesus. So the devil takes Jesus on to another temptation because this one didn't work. And this one becomes even more intense of a temptation. We don't know how this works, but it says the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. How exactly does that work out? It's a few ways in which we could go about it. One, the devil just makes Jesus go up a mountain and they look out over the world. Two, the prophets of the Old Testament sometimes had out-of-body experiences. Jesus at this point maybe has an out-of-body experience where he's taken up to kind of look out at the world as Elijah kind of does with the Valley of Dry Bones, things like that. Whatever the case was, this seems to be a much more surreal experience. And there is a visual temptation. It's not just a stone you can turn into bread. This time, Satan takes him up to look at the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time. And he says to him, to you, Satan says, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Notice that Jesus does not respond to this saying, no, that's not your kingdom. That's God's. Because Jesus knows that when Satan tempted humanity into sin, Satan took a lot of control over this world. This is why the Bible uses terms like principalities and powers to refer to the spiritual realm of darkness. They're reigning over the world. This is why when Jesus cast demons out of pigs, 
sorry, demons out of legion into pigs. The demons say, don't kick us out of this country. Because those demons actually have been appointed to a specific part of a kingdom within that area. This is why in Daniel, when an angel shows up late, he says that there's a spiritual being reigning over Persia, a spiritual being reigning over Greece that were getting in the way. That even within the spiritual realm, there are actually sometimes these boundaries that are set up within the spiritual realm and the demons that are fighting there. And so Satan comes up and is like, look, all this is mine. It's all been delivered to me. I'm in charge of like all these kingdoms, the principalities and powers that reign over them. I'm kind of the head honcho. They report to me because I'm the original offender, the one that sent you all into sin. Look, Jesus, you're the son of God. I know why you're here. You're here to take all this back. We all know where this is eventually headed. You're going to make the world right. You're going to set everything right. You're going to get rid of sin. We remember the, the promise that was made to Adam and Eve that one day they would have a descendant to do this right. That's you, right? So you want it? I'm giving it to you. You can have it. I don't know if Satan knows that death is ahead of Jesus, that the cross is ahead of Jesus. I don't know if Satan knows how powerful this was of a temptation. Because Jesus knows, yeah, I'm going to get all that. But eventually Jesus finds out, if he doesn't know already, that he's going to get it through a cross, through martyrdom, through a R-rated horror story. That though he is innocent, he's going to have to take the execution chair while people mock him and laugh at him. This is a huge temptation. Huge. Jesus, you came here for the kingdoms of this world. I have them. You can have them too. Just worship me and I'll give them to you. How is the other way you're going to go about it? Cross? Is that really the way you want to go out? Surreal moment looking out at the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus quotes scripture again. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus looks at Satan, this little G God of this world, as Paul seems to call him. He looks at the little G God of this world and says, you shall serve only Yahweh. No other gods. I will not worship you. And so Satan tries another temptation, the third one. He takes him to Jerusalem. So again, we have this almost seemingly out-of-body experience this time because he takes Jesus and sits him on the pinnacle of the temple, which I don't think you just get up there very easy. (laughs) He gets up on the pinnacle of the temple and then Satan quotes more to him. He says, if you are the Son of God, so he's questioning his identity, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. That doesn't feel very tempting to me. I don't know about you. If you're the son of God, jump off this building. Uh, Go on. (laughs) Why are we getting at this? But then Satan gives the reason as to why. Because it's written in your scriptures, Jesus. It says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And then he quotes another passage. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, uh, Satan is saying, look, Jesus... You, you still want the kings of this world. You want them to follow you, right? Look, here's another easy way to go about it. If you don't want to worship me to get all the kings of this world, let's try it through the pride avenue. Let's try miraculous ways of going about it. Hop off this temple. 
come on, you know between me and you, people see that you just hit the ground and you're fine, or you just hover there, or angels show up and, and grab you and, and fly you around. I mean, you can just do it that way. Right? You can do it that way. I mean, Jesus knows that he can do this. Because at the cross, he says, rather than dying, I could call an army of angels to come and wipe you all out. Jesus knows that angels are ready to, to catch him, if you will. Jesus knows that even out of his own power, without worshiping Satan, he could still do it another way than the cross. He could just call angels down to do it that way. But Jesus recognizes the temptation. He knows that this is Satan, so he shouldn't listen. He knows that jumping off this building is a, a way of trying to get people to look at him and see the miracles and be like, that guy's the son of God. We're going to follow that guy. Tell all the world. Let's see more powers like that. Just this guy flying around everywhere. We'll, <laughs> we'll go with that. But Jesus quotes scripture again. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus does not say, oh, if I hopped off this building, I would die. We both know that. Jesus knew why he was here. And it's possible angels would have saved him from that moment. It's possible lots of people would have turned to him in that moment. Because miracles did similar things along his ministry. But Jesus doesn't go that route. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes scripture back. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The temptation in the wilderness ends here, but the temptation for Jesus does not. You ever notice... When Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to die, and Peter responds, no, you're not. I am not going to let that happen to you. Jesus responds, what? Get behind me, Satan. In that moment, Jesus sees the temptation all over again. Peter, without knowing it, is speaking out the ideologies of Satan. Jesus, there's another way than the cross. Get behind me, Satan. The temptation shows up again. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he knows that his time is short and the cross is right ahead of him, first off, recognize where he's in. He's in a garden. Does that have any spiritual overtones to you? This is his own garden of Eden. He's faced the wilderness for Israel. Now he's facing Adam and Eve's tree of knowledge opportunity. And Satan is there tempting him. And Jesus is telling his disciples to stay up and pray with him. And they keep passing out. Jesus, Jesus is in agony. The Bible tells us that he's like bleeding through his forehead. He's just sweating so hard he's bleeding from it. As though his very veins are, are punctured by his anxiety. And Jesus with his 12 disciples, he takes a few of them and says, come with me. As though the 12 of them are too much. Come with me. And he goes further into the garden and says, let's pray. But then that's still too much. Jesus says, I'm going to be right back. And then Jesus goes alone and he's praying. And he comes back and he finds the, the few that he took, the special ones, are asleep. He says, wake up. Don't you know what's about to happen? Pray, pray that you don't give in to temptation. They're in the garden. Pray that you don't give in to temptation. 
And then Jesus goes back alone again and prays. And he comes back again, and guess what? They're asleep again. And Jesus just at this point, the time's come. Let's go. And then the enemy walks into the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Garden of Eden of Jesus. And all of the disciples around Jesus give in to temptation and run away. Well, Jesus stays firm. The only people who were there for Jesus in that time were angels. The Bible says that angels were found ministering to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But humans, they left him hanging. So when Jesus comes and tells us that we can overcome temptation, he says it putting his money where his mouth is. Because he has already done it. And before you think, well, that's just because Jesus was Jesus, remind yourself that Jesus set aside the things that did not belong with humanity. And he still overcome every temptation. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And because of that, when Satan overstepped his bounds and tried to put death on Jesus, Satan brought a Trojan horse into hell. Because death was a curse for sin. And Jesus never sinned. And so when Satan's like, I'm going to kill you anyways, by entering into Judas, is what the Bible says, and hanging him on a cross, Jesus dies and goes to hell. And surprise, I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) He goes up to Satan. He takes the keys of death from him. And he's like, I'm out. Goes back up to earth. Sees humanity who's betrayed him. Tries to restore them. Peter, you denied me three times. Now affirm me three times. Good. The rest of you, feed my sheep. Go do ministry. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. Holding the keys of death. And because of that, righteousness is within Jesus. If you want to live a righteous life, if you want to overcome temptation, then you have to lean into Jesus who has given you his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who grows fruit in you rather than temptation and sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who wants to craft you to the sinless life to come. Yeah, one day sin will actually be killed, so you won't be able to choose it anymore in the resurrection. But right now, Paul gives this whole theology about because you have the Holy Spirit in you who's going to kill sin, you can already kill sin in your life right now. We come out of the Wesleyan movement as free Methodists. We actually have a very strong theology in this throughout the years from John Wesley, who had a belief that was a little controversial in his day and still probably is today. It was called Christian perfection. And if I was to just kind of simplify it, it's about getting to the point where you live without sinning intentionally anymore. I know that sounds ridiculous to a lot of us because we're just so used to sin, but I think it, I think it makes sense. I don't think the Bible calls us to just keep sinning and living in it and just saying, well, we all are tempted and this is just every day we will always sin. I think the Bible is actually calling us to grow so much fruit that we eventually get to the point where we are so filled with it that sin is being overcome way more than it used to be. Perhaps eventually getting to the point where we aren't choosing it every day anymore because we've so let the Holy Spirit conform us to who he is. I know that sounds a little audacious, 
But I don't think God's interested in, in uh, us having this ideology that we're just going to sin forever. It just is what it is. Just go on with your life. It doesn't happen overnight. And maybe over decades we can get to that point. You ever met that one grandma in the church somewhere who's like, oh, I've been praying for you for 72 hours straight. How are you alive? <laughs> it's all I do in life is pray. That's Christian perfection. That's someone who's overcome. That's someone who just kept letting God redeem them to the point that the Holy Spirit has so much control over their life that that's just how they live now. So, we have all faced temptation. We have all failed. I am included in that box, even in recent days, I'm sure. Now, as we get ready for real reveal, it's time to give our stuff to God, which you might have to do by giving it to someone else, which you might have to do by asking God to, to free you of a sin, to break every chain, to cast out a demon, or to overcome a compulsion or an addiction or start saying, God, whatever you do, like it's time to, time to bring it into this old life and, and do what Jesus did and overcome temptation and move on into the abundant life that you're calling me into. Like that's the abundant, that's the, if you want the real prosperity of what heaven is, it's not your money. It's not the prosperity gospel the world teaches. It's the becoming so much like Jesus that the fruit really emanates from you. At all times. That's heavenly prosperity. Allowing Jesus to mold you into what you are supposed to be. What you were made to be in the beginning. But lost through sin. And gained back through Christ. So Jesus we come before you right now. We see how Jesus faced temptation. We see that in the desert. Being quoted scripture was not where it ended with you. You quoted scripture back. We see that though an evil spirit came to you and tried to tempt you, you leaned into the the Holy Spirit that was in you already and listened to him. You saw sin as a way of worshiping false gods and you didn't choose it, but instead chose righteousness, which was to follow the one true God. You saw the ability to choose pride, to choose power, and to overcome the world in the same way that Satan overcame the world, by, by dominating it. And instead, you chose a lower path. Now, I'm going to be crucified instead. That'll show them. And God, we face these paths every day. Satan is not unique. The way he tempted you is the way he tempted us. The way he tempts us every day. God, when I come across uh, deliverances, I am not surprised by the kind of lies that I find dug in there because these demons are using the same tactics they've always used their entire life and they're teaching it to others. God, I remember a time where I was casting out one demon and its apprentice showed up. It was learning from the other one how to lead people in these negative ways. They're using the same tricks that Satan used on you in the wilderness. They know it works. They don't want to reinvent the wheel. It's worked since the beginning. It'll continue to work as long as they're around. So let us lean into you because if you could overcome it in your time, then we can overcome it in ours. 
Let us repent and not keep walking in sin, but turn around. Let us repent and not just keep thinking the way that we were thinking before, but radically change our minds. So here we are. We give ourselves to you. Whatever you need us to do to break change today, may we do it. Whether we need to talk to another person, confess something, find reconciliation, go to the prayer team, ask for prayer, call someone, bring something before you that we've never done before, have you counsel us through a memory. Whatever the case is, let us do that today. Let us do that today so that when Saturday comes, Whatever it is that you have for each and every one of us, that might be for us that day. Come and fill up the space. It's yours. Come and fill up us. We're yours.